Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And Mike. And between us, we're rereading The Ionian Mission, which is our current book in the whole series of Aubrey Matchery novels by one of our favourite authors, Patrick O'Brien. So, Mike, we're steadily making our way towards the end of The Ionian Mission. Remind us what happened last time. Give us a flavour of what might be coming this week. You bet, Ian. Well, we're, we're making our way to the end of the book, The Ionian Mission. We're making our way to the beginning of the actual Ionian Mission. So as yeah. you know, last week, as Admiral Thornton prepared to leave his station, as he put it, he sent Jack, Stephen, and Professor Graham off on the actual Ionian Mission in the surprise with a hand-picked crew. They had Babington in the Dryad going along in company. Uh, in that episode, Stephen took an untimely swim, Jack took a prize, Babington took some lesbians, and Mustafa Bey, one of these three Turkish leaders who are vying for control of this uh, strategic territory that Jack will be negotiating with, well, that leader, Mustafa, took no mercy on some Greek pirates that Jack had come across earlier. So this week... They continue on that mission, and Jack is working to decide which of these three bays, these three Turkish leaders, all of whom are fighting for control of the city, will make the best British ally against the French. You know, whoever he selects, he's going to supply with cannon and powder, which should decide who gets to take the city and hopefully who will be then helping England uh, boot the French from a strategic area here in the Ionian. We return this week to one of Stephen's favorite topics, the influence of authority. We discuss cowardice. We learn about negotiating in the Turkish manner, all as the real Ionian mission continues. It's great to be in the Ionian. It's great to be on the mission. We are still a little bit in the fictitious Ionian, though, Mike, because our heroes are on the surprise. And as, as this chapter opens, they're moored outside a harbor called Mizenteron. And Mizenteron really appears to be one of the made-up places in this whole geography of the Ionian Sea. Um, We're up on the northern end of the Greek coast, probably into Albania, and Mizenteron is a harbour in one of these um, seven isles. The seven isles were real, Mizenteron's a fictitious place. Anyhow, they're in this rather stinky-looking, silted-up harbour full of tree trunks. They're waiting to be welcomed by the first of the bays, Ishmael. And Mike O'Brien took a bit of trouble in the last chapter to give us the lowdown on these three, Ishmael and Mohammed and Siahan. So here we are with Ishmael. He's the first one that they pass on their journey up the coast. So just from a geographical point of view, he becomes the first stop. They saluted the castles. The cannons roared out. Nothing happened. So Jack has a mind to up anchor again and continue their next stop rather than to keep everyone standing there dressed, ready to receive an in, an official invitation. We know that Mustafa is next in Karia, and we know that after him, Siahan Bey is waiting in Kutali, which is where the French, or next to where the French are in Marga. But whatever happens, I think Jack's keen to be back at sea in the evening to exercise the great guns aboard the Surprise. He's got the cannon, as you said, Mike. He's got the gunpowder. He can provide the bays with what they need to basically make them the winner of this potential fight. And he's surprised, I think, that he's being kept waiting. He he really is. And Jack's sitting there pondering what's going on. 
But Stephen and Professor Graham are making you know great use of the situation. They're up in the main top because for them, they can kind of look out and see what is uh, ancient Greece. You know, they're both so fascinated by this, and unfortunately. Graham is taking out his love of ancient Greece by lecturing uh, the two master's mates that were sent up to keep them safe. And, and he is really just boring them senseless. And, and possibly Stephen, too. You know, Graham's recounting Homer's Iliad and the account of the oracle at Dodona, uh, all the followers there, and the speaking oaks, which are supposedly in the territory, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves of the future. He's going on and on and on about all the region's history, including the Battle of Actium. And now here we've got an actual significant naval battle, which pipes the interest of, of the master's mates. And they want to know, hey, wait, who had the weather gauge there? <laughs> of course, neither Graham nor Stephen can tell them who had the weather gauge. And O'Brien tells us that the only relief for these poor guys comes when Graham accidentally steps backwards into the lever's hole. So welcome, Professor. Good to have you here. (laughs) So, Mike, it it seemed to me that Graham's still on this kind of intellectual showing off thing that he has going on. He, He really can't help himself. And he's got this great erudition and he's very willing to show off. And I just wonder if this isn't a bit of Patrick O'Brien making fun of himself. I remember thinking that about the Scrivener character way back in post-Captain, you know, a shrewish, um, penniless author. And now we've got an over-intellectual show-off who's verging on being a bit of a bore. And I can almost imagine that as being an undesirable characteristic of O'Brien, that O'Brien's gently mocking in himself or or something. Right. But... But meanwhile, Mike, this Battle of Actium, a real-life naval battle in the world of the classics, that we're not sure who had the weather gauge. Have we got any way of finding out who really did have the weather gauge? What went on with the Battle of Actium? Well, you know, it's fascinating because I, I was thinking in my own mind, wait a minute, weather gauge? This, you know, the weather gauge would have nothing to do with this battle. So I, I went back and I was thrilled to have this opportunity to do a little research because this, as you said, famous battle, this kind of decided the future of the Roman Empire here after Julius Caesar's assassination when you, know, you had this triumphant that were you know working to kind of either split up and rule the empire or or overtake one another and this is where Octavian in 31 BC uh, we would say September 2nd 31 BC you know, there's this great mm-hmm. naval battle the forces of Octavian, who becomes Augustus after 27 BC, so four years later, um, has this decisive victory over Mark Antony. Uh, and he becomes sort of the undisputed master of the Roman world. So we're back having kind of one, one Caesar again. Uh, and, and mom, if you're out there, hi, mom. This, of course, is depicted with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton Back in the 1963 movie, my mom is a huge Elizabeth Taylor fan. So, uh, I don't back, but in fact, a nice a nice job in the footage there. Uh, again, later in the 1999 movie, you have this footage, and as the movie showed, these things were huge vessels that would ram one another. They had all of these folks rowing, and so you know, the, while they had sails, the sails were not important. However. A little bit of research suggests one of the ancient historians, probably a couple hundred years after this battle, writing about it, that 
perhaps the wind, in fact, influenced the outcome. We know that Cleopatra was watching. She's watching, you know, uh, Mark Antony and Octavius forces come together. They're having a hard time figuring out who's winning, what's going on. No word of Lord Antony? By now he must have Octavian. You yourself said he rammed Octavian's ship. It may be that Lord Antony rammed a ship flying Octavian's insignia. But if it is Octavian's ship, if Octavian is on board. And if Lord Antony finds and kills Octavian, he is still surrounded by half the Roman fleet. And send him help. I've none to send. Uh, this historian suggests that she, being a very, you know, an impulsive person, can't wait and sends her ships to come to Antony's rescue, uh, come to his aid but that they raise sails to do that, to get there quicker, the wind changes and they seem to be blown off course and appear to be deserting, leading to you know, Antony's forces kind of morale completely going away, thinking they're being deserted and, and perhaps turning the tide of the battle. So don't know, maybe the weather gauge was in fact a critical element. Yeah, the wind is important. And I think morale and uh, self-confidence is important as well. I'm sure both of those are uh... Ah, are themes that are important to Jack Aubrey right now. You bet. Anyhow, we're going to stay with Stephen as he leaves Graham's company for a moment. He gets to go and visit the cabin with Jack. He smells coffee. He visits Jack. And he says that he was overcome by Graham's elephantine memory. And I think he's been a little bit punch drunk on all of this erudition and all of this great classical knowledge and memory that, uh, that Graham has. But in particular, he wants help in building an argument. He says, I'd like your help, Jack. He wants to rebut this assertion that Graham's made that the Navy was a school for cowardice, which is a pretty extreme point of view. And Graham had said to Stephen that he, Graham, had seen an admiral throw an inkwell at a post-captain and that the post-captain, described as being a choleric and masterful man, overcame his desire to retaliate by a very great exertion of self-discipline explaining afterwards that if he had raised his hand to his superior officer, it would have been the end of his career, even in theory of his life. Mm. Graham observed that the Admiral could blackguard and even assault the captain with impunity, just as the captain could blackguard and even assault his lieutenants and they their inferiors and so on to the penultimate member of the ship's company. He said that the Admiral from his earliest days in the Navy had seen the cowardly practice of abusing and beating men who could not reply, their hands being tied, and that his mind, having been long schooled in cowardice, and he wearing the impregnable armour of the King's Commission, it now appeared to him quite natural to do so. Oh, Mike, this is a very downbeat perspective on naval discipline. And even Stephen is going, this sounds a little bit harsh. Help me unpick this. Help me come back at Graham somehow. Right. And and I, I kind of wonder, you know, we, you know, this has been kind of a favourite topic of Stephen's, although in a little bit of a different guise here. And, and so a little bit of me wonders, you know, does Stephen really want to rebut Graham or Stephen really want to sound Jack out and say, so how would you argue with this? Tell me. But uh, Stephen says it, he, he only brings it up because he's just seen a seaman, you know, a midshipman threaten, you know, a really big hand with a rope's end. And, and Stephen's saying, you know, in a state of nature, meaning the non-naval world, the seaman would have silenced the boy. But in these, as Stephen calls them, unnatural conditions, it was the seaman who was silent. So he says to Jack, you know, so, so how should I reply to Graham? What do you think? 
So Jack decides to go <laughs> offer Stephen a pretty direct line to take back with Graham. He says, if you do not choose to call him a pragmatical clinch poop and kick his breech, which you might think ungenteel, perhaps you could tell him to judge the pudding by its fruit. And this is, this is a great little back and forth on Aubreyisms. Right. Stephen says, you mean prove the tree by its eating? This is egging Jack on with more Aubreyisms. No, no, Stephen, you're quite out. Eating a tree would prove nothing. <laughs> anyway, we get back into the argument. Then you might ask him, had he ever seen many poltroons in the Navy? Stephen says, I'm not quite sure what you mean by poltroons. Why, says Jack, you might describe them as something that cannot be attempted to be tolerated in the Navy, like wombats, he added with a sudden recollection of the creatures Stephen had brought aboard in an earlier command. Mean-spirited, worthless wretches. By the way, I think he's talking about poltroons here. Mean-spirited, worthless wretches. Cowards, to put it in a word. You are unjust to wombats, Jack, and you are unjust to my three-toed sloth. Such illiberal reflections. But leaving wombats to one side and confining ourselves to your poltroons, Graham might reply that he had seen a good many bullies in the Navy, and for him, perhaps, the two are much the same. But they ain't, you know. They ain't the same thing at all, says Jack. I thought they were once when I was a youngster and I stood up to a tyrannical brute, quite sure he would prove a barnyard cock and turn shy. Lord, how he did bang me up and down. And he goes on to talk about this beating that he'd had at the hands of this, I guess, senior midshipman. But this conversation is cut off by the announcement that the official boat is finally pulling off from the shore. But before we get to the boat, Mike, it's, it's really interesting. I think this... The second-hand conversation with Graham about authority and cowardice is setting up some ideas that we might get to see paid off later on. Jack's character, you know, Jack playing the part of an, a, an authority figure, does that inevitably make him a coward? And I know that Jack has worried about whether his conduct is really up to the mark. Right. And is authority, or at least the naval version of it, really uniformly a bad thing? Is there any way that naval authority might provide some kind of answer as to what we should all do next and which course we should follow because lots of people's courses of action are still not clear in this story. No. That's going to be it. You're right. And and we've certainly seen some very different examples of this in Admiral Thornton versus Rear Admiral Hart, for example. Right. Yeah. Good examples. So this conversation being cut off um, everybody is scurrying around. This boat has pulled out. Jack sends for Graham, who's going to be his Turkish interpreter. Um, and he tells the two master's mates to be sure that Graham gets down safely this time. Uh, they're preparing a big official welcome. They've actually laid out Jack's cabin with pillows on the floor and a hookah in the middle so they can smoke and negotiate. Uh, but the official turns out to be simply a messenger sent to invite Jack to dinner and to apologize for the delay in inviting him. He explains that the bay had been out hunting. Jack tries to make conversation, says, what was he hunting? And the reply is Jews. Jack's a little stopped there. Uh, But luckily he's rescued when Poolings runs back in to announce that the messenger's boat, which had been handled so poorly coming out to the ship, had sunk next to the ship. The messenger says he's not at all surprised. It's clearly God's will and that he never puts out to sea without expecting a disaster. So it, it's a very funny moment. On the one hand, it's almost farce the way that this Turkish boat just sinks next to the surprise. And it's farcical comedy that the aide simply accepts this in this very sort of phlegmatic way. But 
I think we're meant to read into it something about the the potential for disaster at sea. <laughs> Maybe this guy's got wisdom that Jack needs to get out get a hold of somehow. Anyhow, things go better when they're ashore. They go back ashore in Jack's barge, and they're met by Ismail Bey himself, who provides Jack with a beautiful horse. So we go from moldy sinking boat to beautiful horse right. to ride the whole 300 yards that he has to travel <laughs> to the castle. And when he gets to the castle, Jack gets to sit down with Graham, the Bey, the vizier, who's this chief counselor, an astrologer, the Bey's keeper of nightingales, the keeper of cranes, all of these folks gathered round. Um, and they're asked to provide an answer to a question about local pelicans that Stephen had asked the messenger, and they get to sit down for dinner. And Mike, we, I think O'Brien writes in quite an approving way about Turkish manners and Turkish style. I know he does it in this book. He's going to write appreciatively about Turkish manners in Treason's Harbour, which is coming next. Um, we just describe this dinner eaten in the Turkish style. Graham is advising them on customs and you know, keep your legs crossed and keep your sleeve out of the dish. <laughs> and Jack's finding this a bit of a grind. He's writing home later on telling Sophie what a great pain it was to sit cross-legged for hours with your breech buckles grinding into your bones. And he describes the prize that they've won. He describes to Sophie the, the partial relief that this prize offers to their difficulties and also goes on to tell her some of the historical and geographical things that she must have the children learn about. And I think he's picking up a little bit of the scholarly vibe from Graham and feeling a bit inferior because... He writes that um, he wants his kids to have the benefit of this uh, this learning, but he feels a bit of a twinge when he reads those lines back because it says in the text, Jack had never been a hypocrite until he became a father, and even now it did not come easy. Mm, 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 mm. Boy, I resemble that remark. <laughs> of course, as a father, I've never been a hypocrite. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You should follow my example of being a non-hypocritical father, I think. That would be. <laughs> oh, you know, we talk about how people see each other and that sort of thing. And here is Jack kind of seeing himself in the reflection of Graham, probably Graham looking at Jack in certain ways. And, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's fascinating to have Jack writing back to Sophie here. Uh, and then he tells Sophie, you know, I'm not going to tell you all about the negotiations because I've got to write to the Admiral and, and brief him on that, which which he does next. And he tells the Admiral that he does not think Ishmael is a good choice as an ally uh, for very practical reasons. He doesn't have a plan for taking Kutali or Marga. He can't tell Jack the number of troops at his disposal, only that there are a great many. Uh, and he seems to lack any sense of urgency. He actually spent pretty much all of his time telling Jack about how he has a great in and a great relationship with the British embassy and putting down his rivals, Mustafa and Skian. Uh, so he calls them a sad pair of wicked, greedy, inept cowards. One, an illiterate corsair, scarcely better than a pirate. And the other, a man of doubtful loyalty to the Sultan, who is under the influence of a traitor to Turkey, this Ali Pasha, who uh, a Pasha that that Graham had been briefing Alan and Stephen about early in earlier chapters. Uh, he also adds in that you know this last bay as impotent in battle as he is in the harem. So we're we're not above really personal remarks here. And he adds just to seal the deal with Jack that they're both devoted to Napoleon. So 
Jack is not at all happy about this and, and is even less happy later as Graham tells him, you know, that this is kind of the way Oriental negotiations go. They're very slow. You know, there's a certain amount of deception that's expected. And by the way, while we were there, and I didn't translate for you, but you know, they attempted to bribe both you and me. Um, and Jack is now wondering yeah. to himself, you know, so this is the embassy's you know, choice for our best bet. God, I hope to, you know, I hope he's not the best of the three here. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what the other two. It's interesting that O'Brien is helping us keep track by inserting a little bit of referential stuff in the dialogue. So as a little reminder for who's who, Ismail himself says the other guys are either the, the, the other guys are an illiterate corsair and a man of doubtful loyalty to the Sultan. That's a great way for helping us keep track of who is who. Right. We need to go back, Mike, to an episode that's been talked about earlier on in the narrative. Jack summons midshipman Elphinstone, who I don't think we've had any dealings with so far in the book. No, no, man. Elphinstone it was who had brought Davis up on a flogging charge. Davis, the man whose life Jack saved, the man who presumed his way back into the ship with that handshake. And I think, Mike, this is the episode that Stephen had witnessed and commented on, talking about a, a midshipman abusing this very you know, old and experienced but inferior in rank um, lower deck guy. Jack tells Elphinston how much he, Jack, dislikes flogging. He points out that this guy Davis has no one to speak for him. And Elphinstone tries to buttress his, uh, his position by describing the nature of the insubordination. And Jack very gently, I think, reminds Elphinstone of Jack's personal dislike for flogging, of the damage that it can do, and describes that Davis is good at other things like boarding enemy ships and that perhaps in time Elphinstone might come to appreciate those, those qualities. And I just wonder whether there's a little bit of Chekhov's gun here. I wonder whether Davis's skills in a boarding party might be exhibited to Mr. Midshipman Elphinstone later on. We'll have to see what happens there. But it's funny, Jack's being given all these chances to signal his strength and his even-handedness as a leader, and I think he does a great job here. We'll have to see how it uh, how it plays out later on. Meanwhile, though, somebody who's not happy with the situation is Preserved Killick. Yeah, you know, I snickered when you were talking about Turkish manners at the dinner because you know one of the things that happens through that scene is that Killick keeps whining about Jack getting his sleeves, his uniform sleeves and the Turkish food. And now he's whining because he can't get the stains from last night's dinner out. And Jack wants to put this uniform on to go dispense punishment. Uh, he puts it on anyways. De you know, we go through all the early defaulters list and, and we get to Davis's name. And immediately the bosun starts to take the cat from the bag. Jack has the 22nd article of war read, which, you know, talks about the possible punishment here. And they, you know, they echo that shall suffer death a couple of times and then add on that or whatever other punishment is decided, you know, as circumstances dictate. Davis has nothing to say for himself and starts to remove his shirt ready for his flogging. But then Elphinstone, the midshipman, speaks up saying that Davis is usually diligent, attentive, obedient to command, and respectful. And at this, one of Davis's messmates can't help it and just laughs out loud. You know, the midshipman struggles to continue, and, and he begs Jack off the punishment. Jack is delighted. He launches into a dreary homily on right and wrong, which everybody agrees is, is good in that it is thankfully short. But at least... 
at least what what do we get from Jack here? Ian? I think we're getting a couple of things. First of all, it's it's a lovely moment. He's done this Solomon like trick of getting everybody to be okay. And at his best, when he's kind and diplomatic like this, Jack can really, really fix problems between people. And he's nudged Elphinstone into begging Davis off the punishment. And he's helped everybody. He's helped Davis. In the long run, I think he's helped Elphinstone. What's funny, though, is that Jack still can't help himself from delivering what you might perhaps call a bit of a hypocritical um, sermon about right and wrong. So it's not all perfect for Jack. But I really like the fact that he's he's resolved this situation and that he's got Elphinstone and he's got Davis as as okay members of the ship's company. I think this is really good. This is all done now. Defaulters is over and Stephen's back in Jack's cabin and looking shrewish. Shrewish, of course, means bad-tempered or aggressive or assertive. And O'Brien writes that Jack seems to have found a way to latch on to people who have this kind of shrewish characteristic in his friends and the people around him he says that jack is a large florid good-natured man and he has an undue proportion of people with this shrewish aspect he mentions henage dundas who is known as vinegar joe he mentions killick he even mentions sophie in this connection and stephen says okay i i have this question for information only um, that he asks when captains set themselves up as judges and lay down the moral as well as the military law extolling virtues that they rarely if ever practice do they feel the spiritual squalor of their conduct and this is i love this line of dialogue jack's got a big smile on his face he replies i dare say they do i know i've often wondered that i was not struck down by levin flash he means struck down by lightning but there you are and this is the great line for me no ship carries a man rated spotless Christian hero, so the captain has to do what he can for the sake of discipline. I'm like, I, I love this. And it wasn't so much Stephen extending the debate for the sake of riling Jack up. He's just enjoying this prolonged fencing match about hypocrisy and authority. And actually what it really does, this little bit of dialogue, is give Jack the chance to give this really great line i wish i had occasions in my life when i could say no ship carries a man rated spotless christian hero but i'm sure one will come along later i i sure wish i had read it during my time in seminary because we all needed to be reminded of the fact <laughs> and and i love like you say we've got this this kind of this tennis match as as jack and steven go back and forth and steven very graciously extends the match a little bit yeah you know uh, o'brien writes i see said steven so it's not for the sake of exalting him in his own opinion. It's not for the sake of airing his own views before an audience that dare not stir or disagree. It's not for the deeply discreditable, oh, nay, wicked pleasure of exercising his almost unlimited power, nor is it that our gentleman is unaware of the true nature of his act. No, no, it is all for discipline, for the country's good. Very well. I am content. Then I would add, says Stephen, dripping with sarcasm. <laughs> and he's really enjoying it. And I think this is a kind of sarcasm from Stephen that is that is banter back and forth with Jack. I don't think he genuinely yeah. has any any immediate personal beef with Jack, just his general permanent long-term attitude about uh, authority. I agree. I love it. One last kind of turning over of, of a further stone in this conversation about authority. And Stephen, quite cleverly, I think, navigates it back to something that's a bit more of a, a conversation point. He asks Jack 
what is meant by the idea of passing for a gentleman. And Jack realizes that Stephen must have been talking with driver. Now, Mike, we've had officers that occur from time to time of various ranks, often Marine officers, also Lieutenant Summers earlier on, um, also Captain Clonfort back in the Mauritius Command, who are big on the idea of hereditary entitlement on the, the, the privilege and the and the inherent authority and goodness of people who have an inherited title, who are from an ancient family. So Jack realizes Stephen's been talking with Driver, who's a Marine officer who puts a lot of store in all this stuff about title and, uh, uh, and inheritance. And Jack says, well, passing for a gentleman is like passing for a lieutenant. Lots of people pass the exam, as it were, and are, are passed by the Admiralty Board, put on the list, but they can't get promoted. They can't get ships because they don't have family, they don't have friends, they don't have connections that can make interest for them. So this is what he means by they do not pass for gentlemen. And Jack uses Tom Pullings as an example. He pulls out a letter that he, Jack, had written on behalf of Tom eight years ago. And the Admiral's reply, which was that Jack's recommendation was not even considered by the board. And Jack bemoans the fact that because of General Albury, Jack's father, Jack has even less ability to make interest on behalf of Tom. And he's sorry that they haven't seen action. And we've heard this before. He really hopes that getting uh, a decisive sea action for the surprise at this point will be what it takes to get Tom Pullings the promotion that he deserves. And Jack says it's the old story of gentlemen, captains, and tarpaulins over again. And, and tarpaulin is a word that he's using as a uh, an epithet for a, a lower class or a, a working class sailor from the lower decks. And Jack says this after describing a captain who said he wouldn't take Tom Pullings as a lieutenant because he said balcony instead of balcony. And right, th- this is a very, very British thing. And I'm ashamed, as I say, as a British person, that we still haven't got rid of this. Pronunciation is a really big signal of social class. And it was a massive signal of social class in the early 19th century. I'm sorry to say it's still a bit of a signal that we're all a little bit attuned to. Yeah, do you say scone or do you say scone? You know, do you call the midday meal lunch or dinner? Do you call the evening meal dinner or tea or supper? It's got echoes of class, and British people are cursed with a ridiculously sensitive ear for it. And I think O'Brien's talking about this in the 19th century, and I think he's referring to it in the 20th century as well. Mm. It hasn't disappeared nearly as quickly as it should have done. But I think every British person goes, oh, yeah, balcony, balcony, that's a nightmare. Scone versus scone. Yeah, you've got no idea how to pronounce it unless you're very, very closely attuned to how your social class and the social class of the other person are linked together. Oh, man, it's a nightmare. Ouch. Anyway, Mike, if we're going to talk about tea and scones and lunch and dinner, perhaps our listeners might want to take a break for a scone or maybe even a scone (laughs) and sit out on the balcony or even the balcony and enjoy it. What What do you think? Should we take a break? Great idea. (laughs) If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lubber's Hole. Well, welcome back to the Lubber's Hole, where we say potato, potato, tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. (laughs) Instead... Stephen, you know, kind of following up on this conversation about passing for a gentleman, asked Jack what he thinks of all this. 
And Jack says that, you know, now that he thinks about it, if two men's seamanship are equal, he'd probably go for the gentleman because they'd get along better with the other officers, but mostly because the foremast hands, in, as Jack says in his words, value birth so highly, perhaps more than they should. I think Ian underscoring exactly the point that you made there. However, he notes that they don't need to save balcony much on a ship and that Tom Pullings, that while he's perhaps not a Howe or a Nelson, would be a better captain than most of the other people on the naval list or the other lieutenants. So hear him, I say, hear him. It's interesting to me, Mike, to delve into this idea, not, not just of snobbishness and, and class, but the idea of reputation. And I think we're hearing a lot yeah. about this in the book how we're, we're being asked to judge and our characters are being asked to judge other people based on very indirect signals, based on inferences, on reputation. We don't know anything about anybody for sure. And I think Jack is reflecting that he doesn't know anything about himself for sure. Right. Um, can we judge someone? Well, I think we're asked to speculate about the Turkish bays as well. Can we judge someone based on their observed behavior, their reported behavior, the way they talk about other people? Um, should we give respect to learning, as, as Graham hopes? Um, should we give respect to noble birth? Should we give respect to the cloth, because we're going to encounter um, a, a cleric pretty shortly? Should we give respect just to seamanship? Hmm. I, I don't think any of those gets a clear answer yet. No, and, and you know, if we kind of watch with the, the ups and down of Jack in his career. You know, this has been, it's been defining moments one after another. Who's in power? What do they look for? What's, you know, what's going on with his family? That's so true, Ian. Well, well spotted. Speaking of spotting, that evening they spot Mustafa, who's sometimes referred to as Captain Bay. They spot his two ships coming up fast, just as the surprise is finishing their gunnery target practice. Uh, Mustafa is likely, according to Graham, to be on the frigate Torgood, and he's accompanied by the 20-gun ship Katabi. Jack notices that the Torgood's carrying more guns than he thought as she turns broadside towards him, and he sees that there's two very odd gun ports amidships. He does note that she's sailing well, but he's he's thinking that she's just a little pressed down by these guns, this, you know, this large assortment of guns here. He's this big red-headed man. Dax spots him. Uh, he's got a big red beard down to his swelling belly, a purple turban, purple trousers. Uh, he comes over and Jack's a little uh, amazed at how easily he comes up the surprise's side. O'Brien notes that he gives a very impressive bow. He speaks English. When Jack offers him coffee, he says he might be tempted to drink a little wine or spirits rather than coffee. Jack likes that he smiles often. He likes that he looks at him when he talks to him. And he loves that Mustafa and loves the tour of the ship. He's especially impressed by the gunnery innovations that Jack has brought forward from Philip Brook and the Shannon. He tells Jack that there's nothing he likes more than a furious battery at ever decreasing range followed by boarding. Hmm. I think we're getting a strong signal here of a potential kinship between Mustafa's attitude to gunnery and Jack's attitude to gunnery. And certainly we know that Mustafa loves, you might even say, covets the guns on the surprise. He says he's really glad that Jack has brought them because he, Mustafa, needs them to take Kitali. And Jack says, well, you know, I'd love to give these guns to another seaman, but I need to deliver 
them to the ally who can best remove the French from Marga. And Mustafa says that he knows what the other Bays will say about him. Again, we're getting inference and secondhand reputation. He absolutely nails the criticism of Ishmael. And he says, do you know what? Siahan will say that he's in league with Ali Pasha against the Sultan, but he points out, neither will tell Jack of Mustafa's great victories. Neither of them can help turn the French out of Marga because he says Ishmael's just an Egyptian eunuch, um, scared of battle, and Siahan is too old for battle. So again, they're dissing each other. He says once he takes Kutali, they'll attack Marga by land and sea, while the Muslims in the town, he says, will rise up. Nothing can withstand the shock. And he invites Jack to take a look around to review um, his ship and his crew. Jack goes over and, and he notices that this is this big, fierce, savage, dark, passionate, rough, fiery, vicious, tigerish crew. I mean, it's a, this is almost like Stephen's stacks of adjectives, but going in a very different direction. And passionate, rough, fiery, tigerish, these are all fire color metaphors. And he's very subtly inviting us to paint this kind of poetic picture of Mustafa, who has a purple turban and a red beard. And I think O'Brien is loving the tiger metaphor, loving the idea of fire and color. Not a million miles away from the metaphor that he's used about Diana in other parts of the canon. So I'm not saying that we're meant to see Mustafa in the same way as we see Diana, but he's O'Brien is loving the idea of a visual image and he's loving the idea of color as a way of portraying someone's character. Oh my. Well, it's a great thought, Ian. You know, just that, uh, you know, it wasn't long ago we had uh, Jack thinking that he was no longer perceived as the real salamander. And here we find O'Brien describing somebody else perhaps as being that. Mm. Interesting. Well, this crew, they seem to be in all of their Captain Bay. Um, but he does note that they lack order, orderliness, cleanliness, and discipline. So not the, not the Royal Navy way. Jack listens as Mustafa describes his plan of attack on Katali. He's going to start with a bombardment that's driven by these shallow draft gunboats, all with Jack's cannons mounted on them. And then a general assault by 40 more small sailing vessels here. Uh, Now, Jack's listening to this and trying to concentrate on it, but his mind is distracting. He keeps looking at this middle gun in the long row of 18-pounders. It just seems to tower over the others, but it's hidden behind a closed gun port and covered by a sail. And and Mustafa, I think in very dramatic fashion, walks over, whips off the sail and reveals this 36-pounder, which is it's unheard of in a frigate. Actually, it's yeah. in, in the British Navy, it's unheard of in a ship of a line. They carry 32-pounders and then only on the lowest tier. And Jack then notices that... So, this frigate has a 36-pounder on each side right there in the middle and is is pretty taken with that. That's some, some impressive firepower. Um, Jack and Mustafa keep on talking until Jack has to head off to meet the Dryad. And we, we let into Jack's thinking about Mustafa. Jack believes that Mustafa could, would drive Siahan Bay from Kutali if he could and even kill him, but that he didn't really dislike him. Mustafa, on the other hand, clearly dislikes Ishmael, is very worked up about the idea of killing Ishmael, swears on the lives of his children's children. And meanwhile, while he's waiting for Jack in the boat, Bonden gets to have a point of view. 
interesting that Bondon's opinion and Bondon's observations are called in now that we're really trying to feel our way. Uh, Bondon's greeted by a hairy face behind the 36-pounder gunport. It's Ezekiel Edwards, who'd served with Bondon as a quarter gunner on a ship called the Iris. Edwards had run and was now gunner's mate on this Turkish ship. And Bonin asks about the gun. Edward says these great big guns were a gift from the French in Corfu who didn't want them because they were Portuguese and that the French didn't have shot for them. But the bay had marble round shot made by the Greeks. That's a weird idea. Mm. But, says Edwards, there are only nine of them left. So we had Ishmael, who seemed willing to display his political connections and seem ready to diss the other two guys. We have Mustafa, who comes across as reasonably likable and seaman-like, but the ship's a mess. They have these strange 36-pounder guns. Mike, I think, though, if, if Jack Aubrey's going to fight one of these guys, maybe he's destined to fight the one who's got the ships? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And and we've seen, you know, in the last chapter, Mustafa leaving this absolute carnage in his battle with those Greek pirates. So... Yeah, straightforward and likable. One moment, I wonder what he's like the next. Well, Jack is thinking the same thing to himself. He's he's doing his typical walking back and forth on the quarterdeck. He's had long conversations with Stephen and Graham, kind of weighing up the two bays. They've gone to bed, and Jack's still up wondering. Yeah, and and he thinks, you know. Is Mustafa really going to turn the French out of Marga, given that he's got this friendship with the French general in Corfu? Yeah, he's not so sure. Um, meanwhile, they're sailing the dryads kind of far out on the side. They're they're patrolling this stretch of water, searching for possible prizes. And Jack happens to look over and he sees Babington laughing with a woman on the quarter rail. Now, if, Babington and a woman, that's never happened before. Yeah, yeah, not, not since last chapter, right? <laughs> right. You know, when, when Babington had repaired aboard earlier, he, he'd given him this story about, you know, having to give a lift to this Italian matron. He, he you know, was going to set her down on shore, but the wind changed and he knew if he stopped, he wouldn't be able to meet the surprise in time. So he had to bring her along. And Jack just thinks to himself, this will not do. <laughs> Surely not the last time that Jack is going to think that about Pappington's choice of female company. So anyway, we get to have a little bit of reflection here. And of course, it takes place over breakfast. Um, Jack notices the, the midshipman Williamson, who's a, a widow's son, sends him down to see Dr. Maturin and in turn to invite Dr. Maturin to come up and see Kutali Bay and have breakfast. And Stephen arrives late. He's had a laudanum night. He's a broken sleep because he's been using laudanum. And Mike, this is an example of, I think, we, we just get dropped in from time to time that Stephen still hasn't freed himself from his connection to laudanum and to raise the possibility that all is not okay in the world of Stephen. But right. we'll see. He smokes a cigar, which is kind of second best drug, I think, to laudanum for Stephen. Um, and they're looking out across the glass smooth water, which presents this beautiful reflected view of the mountains and the buildings. And we see the heavily fortified upper Christian town. And Jack notes that there are cannon up there that could sink Mustafa's gunboats. We're told that Mustafa thought that the Christians did not have good guns and that he told Jack that they would not interfere with two Muslims fighting. So this this choice of who to ally with and who's got the strategic position and who's got the other assets, still really unclear. 
Jack, meanwhile, looking at this harbour, thinking what a good naval base the harbour would make. Look at all those wooded forests. This could be a great place for us to take and, as a result, be able to turn the French out of this part of the Mediterranean. Right. Well, they, as they're looking at the town, they spot the banner of this third bay. It's a single horse tail, which represents an alley bay, sort of like a British brigadier, kind of above a colonel, below a major general. And Jack notices that the boat that's leaving the shore doesn't have a brigadier aboard. It has what Jack calls a Greek parson, or what he says is referred to as a pope in these waters. It's actually Father Andros, who represents the Orthodox Christians on Catali. Uh, He comes aboard. They give him an official welcome nonetheless. And it turns out that in addition to representing the Christians, he's one of the Bay's political advisor and is acting as his emissary. He tells Jack that the Bay is unwell. He does hope to meet with Jack Aubrey later. He's feeling better. And he sent Father Ambrose because time is of the essence. He presents Jack with an official letter from the Bay. And while he's doing that, in an aside in Turkish to Graham, he brings greetings of Osman the Smyrniot. And and, and, and Graham seems to be very interested, ask if he's there in Katali. And he says, no, no, no. He had to leave Katali to go see Ali Pasha the day that Graham saw Ishmael. And the the red lights start to flash here a little bit for me. And as I'm reading this, I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Ali Pasha, this is that guy that's been mentioned a couple times as a big traitor to the Sultan. Graham mentioned him to Allen and Admiral Hart when he was doing the briefing on the area. He's come up a couple times as these bays are talking about, oh, they'll say that I'm in league with Ali Pasha. And how does this father know what day Graham met with Ishmael? It's just all kind of, I don't know, just, you know, my my James Bond lights going off here. Yeah, it's a, it's a hall of mirrors. Huh. So Jack, meanwhile, I think he's he's willing to cut through all of the hall of mirrors stuff, all of the spy wheels within wheels, and he's willing to trust a man of the cloth. Right. Back to our point. Who do you trust? Jack sees an opportunity to say, well, maybe I can trust this guy because he's a priest, maybe even a pope. <laughs> and he says, I don't need a letter from you. Killick also is swayed by this very fine, manly-looking priest and brings some of Jack's best Madeira. Father Andros says, business is too serious for wine. And O'Brien writes that he laid out his business in a direct, methodical, and Jack would have sworn reasonably candid way. We hear that Sian's claim was said to be perfectly reasonable and just and would no doubt be vindicated by the Sultan's irade in the course of time. He understands that the English want to use Catali as a base for an attack on the French in Marga as a, and as a refuge and as a resupply place for their ships in exchange for a number of cannon, and if these cannons would also be used against the French. And they get to talking about how you could attack Marga, where the French are, from the heights of Kutali, and that also from Kutali you could cut the aqueduct that supplies Marga with water. So there's a there's a, a siege advantage to be gained over the French, apparently, if Jack and the Surprise and the British Navy can take advantage of this position of Kutali. Right. And it's, you know, it's interesting because he's just very straightforward. Uh, he tells Jack reasonably, logically, rationally, that both Mustafa and Ishmael 
would have to fight very hard to take Kutali away from this bay here, and that Sion would have Christian backing because they, the Christians, don't want to be ruled by Mustafa or Ishmael. Uh, they're both, he calls them both bigoted Muslims, bigoted Muslims. So even if they somehow won, it would be with great losses, and then they wouldn't have enough men to take Marga, which they would only do if they kept their word to the English if they won anyhow, which he doubted because of their reputation. Uh, he said it's yeah. that same reputation that led none of the Marga, said if Sion Bay attacked Marga, the Marga Christians would rise up and they would not if Mustafa or Ishmael attacked Marga. And he points out that it's mostly Christians in Marga. So if they want to win quickly before the French in Constantinople intervene, the support of Sion Bay was essential, Hmm. that he had proved himself to be a moderate he was ruling on good terms with all the different groups on the island, such good terms that they had all promised him 680 fighting men, and that he would not have to lose any men to take Catali. So his forces are all marshaled. They're all ready to turn on the French. He's there and ready to go. He points out that the Bay's military reputation is built on 23 campaigns, two of which in Syria and Egypt were working with the British against the French and that he loathes the French. He points out that he's a true Turk, not, as he says, a descendant of Egyptian slaves or an Algerian renegade, referring to the two other Bays. And he invites Captain Aubrey, right? He invites him to come ashore, view my troops, tour the city, see its strengths and its weaknesses for yourself. And Jack says, you cannot say fairer than that and calls for his barge. So Jack is being invited to accept the very straightforward, very credible picture of Siahan Bay along with Father Andros. And he's clearly really tempted to. And anytime Jack says, you can't say fairer than that, you know, he kind of accepts the logic as, you know, self-evident and intuitively plausible. He's curious, though, about who the other groupings are in the population, who are all these other ethnicities. He notices all these unusually dressed people all carrying weapons, and he asks Graham who they are. Graham says they are Tosks, who are southern Albanians like Ali Pasha. Many of the Tosks here, though, are Orthodox Christians. He points out that there are other nationalities as well. And later on, as we're resting on the way up the uh, up, up the hill into uh, into Kutali, they notice a heavily armed Geg Catholic bishop. And Geg is another ethnic grouping. The Gegs and Tosks are two of the major Albanian uh, ethnic groups. This Catholic bishop from the Geg ethnic group comes over. Stephen kisses the bishop's ring, and they speak in Latin, which is always a sign of great worthiness as far as Jack is concerned. They want to know if the English king is about to become a Catholic. And gosh, that's an invitation to a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a gentle lie. And also if the British Admiral might guarantee independence for Qatali. Stephen says, we can't say yes to either point. <laughs> but they go away happier, I think, with the knowledge that Stephen, who is avowedly a Catholic, is in the group. So that was a nice little stroke of fortune for Stephen to be able to respond in respectful terms to a Catholic. And Mike, we're getting a little hint of the ethnic complexities in this corner of Europe. And anybody who was around in this part of Europe in the 1980s and 1990s knows that the 
Serbs and the Albanians and the Croats and the Kosovars and all the other ethnicities in this region have long-standing conflict with each other. Right. So for me, I think this is a little signal that it's not going to be quite as straightforward as you'd think from the picture that we get from Siahan Bey and Father Andros. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Ian. You know, these these gags are the ones who are guarding the citadel. And once they walk there, Father Andros is no longer this loquacious talking. He looks grave when they go inside. He's kind of keeping his eyes down. He's not saying much. Now, going up and getting to the citadel, Jack's looking up going, boy, they've got enough guns here to defeat an entire squadron. And Father Andrews keeps pointing out that they want to be completely candid, that they're trying to show Jack all their defenses. And, you know, he keeps saying, you know, we rely entirely on the honor of an English naval officer. And, and Jack's really getting a little irritated. He thinks they're protesting too much. You know, why do they keep repeating this so much? But he finds out very quickly because once they get inside, he sees that only two of these guns are actually functional. The rest are either wooden fakes or no longer in working condition. Uh, Father Andrew says, look, we've got one more field piece. It's a three and a half pound cannon. And we don't bring it up here because then everybody would know that these guns are, you know, if, if you're going to reinforce it with a three and a half pound cannon, you really don't have much. And a little echo back to observing um, Captain Mustafa Bey. Everybody knows that a three and a half pound cannon is nothing compared to a 36 pounder. So, right. yeah. This time size actually does matter. It turns out, yeah, who thought? <laughs> so Jack, there's a little foreshadowing as well here of, of, uh, of where this might all end up. Jack looks out over the edge. And like, this is very common in Mediterranean villages. You get the, the harbour settlement low down at sea level, and then you get the sort of civic farming merchant settlement high up, up steep roads up on top of the cliff. And Jack looks out over this steep cliff and imagines how on earth is he going to get six cannons up here? It would take them weeks to bring them up by these twisty turning narrow streets. But he has an idea that Tom Pullings would know how to get them up by rope. So we'll stick a pin in that idea. That might be coming up soon. Meanwhile, Father Andros relaxes as he reads Jack's mind. He seems to be seeing that Jack can see a plan emerging. Jack asks, how far away is this aqueduct that we might be able to cut? And we learn that it's 30 minutes hike if you want to take advantage of the wild romantic view, which he's heard that is, is important to English people, or you can get faster by horseback on the smooth road. So they ride out, and Father Andros shows Jack good places where the aqueduct can be cut. So we've got a picture building up here. We've got high cliff. We've got plunging fire from guns. We've got the possibility of a ropeway to take the guns up there. We've got the opportunity of cutting the aqueduct. This is all sounding pretty promising. Jack can envision how you could take Marga by cutting the water, by opening fire from the battery, by moving the cannon here. And in a, in a telling sign that Jack is in good shape, we get to learn that he's very hungry as they head for home. They're, and they're on the way back home and they meet this Turkish officer on the way back. He tells them the bay is recovered, invites Jack to what Graham translates as a quick meal. But getting there, they find it's really a, a much more lavish dinner. Jack is regaled by the Bay about fighting with Sir Sidney Smith. We've heard of him before earlier and about repelling Bonaparte from Accra. The Bay to Jack seems more of a plain man, a man he can trust, more of what Jack expected a Turk to be like. And towards the 
end of the meal, O'Brien writes, Scan said that he was happy to learn from Father Andrus that Jack had seen Catali. He understands that Jack's admiral wishes to be able to use the port for ships and that he wishes us to help him expel the French from Marga. If you will give me the cannon, I and the Cataliots will do our parts. Very well, said Jack. I shall send my consort to Cephalonia for the guns as soon as the wind turns into the north. Wow. And so ends chapter 10. Just like that. Jack's made the decision. He's cut through this confusing picture of reputation and honesty and fighting capability. He thinks he's found his guy. He's made the decision. He says, okay, I'm going to send my ships away for the guns. How are the other bays going to take it? What about Graham and this side channel of conversation he has with and about um, Ali Pasha? How sound is Jack on his judgment of the merits of all these different Turks? What about this guy, Ali Pasha? What about the whole of the rest of the story? We've got Diana and Sophie in the background. We've got Jack's financial troubles, promotion for pulling. There's a lot still to figure out here, Mike. Ah, I don't know. I'm really looking forward. We have one chapter left. What do you say, Ian, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? With all my heart. That's never happened before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not since last chapter, right? <laughs>